Hey, you're listening to Clumsy Theosis, a Catholic podcast that explores topics within the Catholic faith to help us deepen our spiritual lives, own our relationship with the Lord, and strengthen His church. Hey, what's up? My name is Rochelle Lucero, and you're listening to the Clumsy Theosis podcast. Welcome. I'm really glad that you guys are here today because today marks the final episode for a series that we have been doing for gosh, nine weeks now on salvation history. If this is your first time listening to an episode in this series, you might be wondering what salvation history is. And a really simple explanation of that is to say that it's a record of God's saving plan for us that's documented in the sacred scriptures. And it starts with Adam and it goes all the way through to Jesus and the Eucharist. And all of this happens for one purpose. God wants to bring us to himself. He wants us to draw us into his family and into his everlasting life. And when I'm explaining what salvation history is to someone, I really like to stress the point that it shows how God has been actively present throughout the history of humanity, because that addresses a very common misconception that in the Old Testament, God wasn't present among his people. He wasn't very loving. He wasn't merciful because we see a lot of violence. But when we understand the covenants that go throughout salvation history, we we understand why things happen the way that they happened. Now, the episode before last, we talked about how God spoke through his prophets to get the Israelites ready for the covenant that would fulfill the covenant that God had made with David. And it it would be the covenant of all covenants, right? And we established how that sounded like they were talking about Jesus and the Eucharist, right? But that was just us kind of reflecting. So today what I want to do is I want to look at exactly how Jesus and the Eucharist and the events of the Last Supper and the crucifixion and how different aspects of the prophecies given through Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel actually played out in real life. It's really important for me to get this episode out to you before Holy Thursday and Good Friday because seeing how these prophecies played out in real life, you know, what happened on Holy Thursday and on Good Friday, in my lived experience, once I learned all of this information, it truly was awe-inspiring and it has had a great impact on every Holy Thursday and Good Friday I have been a part of since, as well as the way I encounter the Mass. So, get excited. Before we jump into the um, details of the prophecies and the Last Supper and the Crucifixion, this is the time in the show where we take a moment to thank our donors, particularly our patrons, who are people who donate monthly to Clumsy Theosis. And they're super important because Clumsy Theosis is 100% listener supported. So if you're enjoying the show, that's because someone has donated or maybe you yourself have donated. If you haven't donated and you do like what we're doing here at Clumsy Theosis and you would like to help get the show out to as many people across the world as possible, because yes, Clumsy Theosis is international and it blows my mind head over to clumsytheosis.net and click the word donate in the menu. There you will find options to either donate monthly as a patron and as such you get a lot of bonuses and privileges which you will see when you go to that section on the website or you can donate one time and there's a few options for you to be able to do that. This week we do not have a new patron to thank 
So I'm just going to raise my hat and say thank you to those who have given one-time donations within the last week or two. You know who you are. Thank you so much. All right. So in our episode on the prophets, one of the main guys we talked about was Jeremiah, especially a prophecy he gave in chapter 33, verses 31 through 33. And the most important thing to take away from that is where God tells the people through Jeremiah, there will be a quote, new covenant that is going to be very different from the old covenant, which refers to the covenant made with Moses. Now, remember that this covenant made with Moses didn't go away once the Davidic covenant was made. It actually was absorbed by the Davidic covenant. That's why in the Davidic kingdom and even Jews today still follow the law of Deuteronomy, which came about during the Mosaic covenant, but it's still part of the Davidic covenant because it was absorbed. When we think about the old covenant made with Moses, one of the first things we think about are the Ten Commandments, which were laws written on tablets of stone. But in this prophecy, God makes it a point to say that now the new law is going to be written on the people's hearts. Where do we see the fulfillment of this prophecy given through Jeremiah? Well, for that, we should look at Luke's account of the Last Supper, which you'll find in Luke chapter 22. In the episode on the prophets, I kind of gave away a glimpse of this. Remember when Jesus said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And I also reminded you that the Jewish hearer of Luke's gospel would have thought of Jeremiah when they heard that this is what Jesus said, because nowhere else in the Old Testament is the phrase new covenant ever mentioned. And would it surprise you if I told you that there's a deeper meaning to these words that Jesus used at the Last Supper? Probably not, right? Because that's usually what happens with the words of Christ. They always mean more. And I'm really glad that they do because on the surface, let's be honest, this phrase sounds really odd. There's going to be a new covenant in someone's blood, right? That just sounds odd, but not to the Jewish person because in their worldview, life was in the blood. So when Jesus says this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, he's basically saying this is a new covenant in my life. And also, let's not forget that Jesus's blood replaced the blood from the old covenant because when Moses brought down the Ten Commandments, he sprinkled the Israelites with the blood from the lambs and then he took the rest of it and he splashed it on the altar. Remember that? When he did that, he said, behold, the blood of the covenant. And then there's another parallel between the old covenant with Moses and this new covenant with Jesus, and that's the Passover itself. Because again, let's not forget that the Last Supper was the Passover. That's what Jesus and the apostles were doing in the upper room. They were celebrating the Passover. And the Passover came from the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. So Jesus has perfected and fulfilled the Passover at the Last Supper. Now, we're going to reference Luke's Last Supper account, also known as the institution narrative, institution of the Eucharist, that is. We're going to reference that again while we talk about the fulfillment from this next prophet, Isaiah. And when we went over Isaiah in the previous episode on the prophets, we looked at chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 42, specifically verse 6, as well as chapter 55. And the big takeaways there were that basically the Israelites were going to get a new ruler who was going to be divine, as in God, 
right? Also, this covenant that was coming was going to be a continuation of the Davidic covenant. But now it was going to be open to people who were considered hungry and poor. And if they came and they ate, they would be part of this everlasting covenant. And this new ruler himself is actually going to be the covenant. He's not going to be making a covenant. He will be the covenant. All right, when you read Jesus's institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper, no matter which gospel you're reading, Jesus tells his apostles to eat of his flesh and to drink of his blood. And when this happens, when they eat, remember, they will be partaking of the everlasting covenant, which is referred to in Luke's gospel as the new covenant in his blood. And now we need to address, I think, what is considered the big elephant in the room here, because in Isaiah's prophecy, God is talking to the future divine ruler and, you know, the one who comes from the line of David, and he tells him, I have given you as a covenant to the people. And in our episode on the prophets, we just kind of accepted that at face value and moved on. But we need to look at it now. Can someone actually be a covenant? Well, it all comes back to what I said about life being in the blood. So, in Luke, when Jesus said, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, remember Jesus is basically saying, This is a new covenant in my life. And P.S. It's tied together with my soul and my divinity. But there's more going on here, as usual, (laughs) especially when it comes to Jesus. This act at the Last Supper is only considered a sacramental offering of Jesus's blood. Later, he'll give his blood physically on the cross, right? His blood is going to be poured out while he's on the cross. But something else has to happen on the cross to complete this covenant act. Actually, two things have to happen before this covenant is sealed. And I know you might be shocked because I remember when I learned that this was the case, I I was like, what? There's more to this story than just what happens at the Last Supper? Yes, there is. In Luke, before Jesus says anything about the cup of the new covenant in his blood, he says something that sounds really weird to us. But what Jesus says isn't going to sound weird to a Jewish person who celebrates the Passover. What he says can be found in Luke twenty-two eighteen: I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God is here. Now, here's the thing. At the Passover, the Passover itself is a ritual. And within that ritual, you drink four cups of wine. And the fourth and final cup of wine is actually the climax of the Passover. And every part of this ritual needs to be fulfilled in order for the Passover to be fulfilled. And remember, I mentioned kind of briefly the first Passover in Egypt when the Hebrews were slaves and not all the families fulfilled everything needed in the Passover uh, meal, right? And therefore their firstborns died, right? So you have to do it all. History would tell you you have to do it all. The Israelites would know you have to do everything in the ritual. Jesus would know you have to complete the whole ritual of the Passover, but he doesn't drink the fourth cup. When you look at the scriptures, he only drinks the third cup. And then the apostles get up and they go to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives. Um, Yeah, Jesus does, however, on the cross, drink the wine from a sponge that is raised up to him on the hyssop branch, remember? That is Jesus drinking the fourth cup. When he does this, he ushers in the kingdom of God. So the big thing to remember from this is that the Last Supper and the crucifixion, they're connected. Without the Last Supper, the crucifixion 
is just a Roman execution, but they're not separate. They are one act, they're one ritual, they are one liturgical covenant-making act. The Last Supper and the Crucifixion are one liturgical covenant-making act. The other thing that needs to happen brings me to Ezekiel's prophecy. When we talked about Ezekiel, we paid attention to chapters 34 through 37. And I pointed out these main points, that there would be a sprinkling of water, which would cleanse the people of their sins, which had never happened before. And it sounds suspiciously like the sacraments, right? Next, the people would get new hearts and spirits to help strengthen them, strengthening them from sin. And David's heir would be the king and his covenant would be restored, as in David's covenant would be restored. Also, um, Ezekiel calls this covenant a covenant of peace. And when he says this, he's referring to a peace that hasn't existed since Eden. You know, that perfect peace between God and man and the animals and all of creation. And he also says that there will be a new temple. Okay, so on the cross, after Jesus breathed his last breath, the soldier pierced his side with a lance. And St. John tells us that blood and water came from the side of Jesus. And as you might suspect, this blood and water from the side of Jesus is multidimensional. First, it makes Jesus look a lot like the new temple. And why do I say that? Well, because during the Passover feast, there's a lot of animals, hundreds of animals being slaughtered and sacrificed in the temple. And the blood from these sacrifices was filtered down from the temple mount into the Kidron River or stream that ran below the temple. And every Passover, the Kidron would flow with an obvious mixture of blood and water that everyone would see. So Jesus has blood and water coming from his side, symbolizing the new temple. Second, it's the river of life, because remember, the life is in the blood after all, right? And this river of life is none other than the Holy Spirit of God. And we know that through the Holy Spirit, we get the sacraments, the blood from Jesus's side representing the Eucharist and the water baptism. And recall with Ezekiel what he said about the sprinkling of water that cleanses people from their sins, right? And the new hearts and spirits that they'll receive to strengthen them against sin, right? Both of these things come from baptism. And there's something else that baptism does. It makes us children of God, like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They were children of God. Thus, it affords the people, it affords us that peace and that relationship with God that has been missing ever since. I mean, okay, my first Holy Thursday and Good Friday after learning all of this, remember I was studying this in grad school. This was probably my first semester there. And then the second semester we had Lent and Holy Week and all of that. Seeing how Jesus at the Last Supper and the crucifixion fulfilled these prophecies from the Old Testament and left us with the Eucharist and the sacraments, you know, it it totally illuminated that first Holy Thursday and Good Friday for me, as well as the mysteries of our faith. And it was in such a profound way. And it made every Mass ever since then much more spectacular than I ever could have thought they would have been. And so my hope is that this series has kind of done that for you as well. And that's the end of our series. And I have mixed feelings about this. You know, I like completing something, but I am going to miss this topic, which, you know, this brings me to a question I have for you. Do you guys like doing series? So we kind of stay 
within the same vein for a couple of weeks at a time, maybe even a couple of months. I really want to know what you think. It's important for me to get your feedback. So head over to clumsytheosis.net because there you're going to find links for everything social media wise, as well as a link in the header for you to email me so you can tell me if you want me to continue to do series. You can also have opportunities there to sign up to receive my weekly email and the link to donate is also on the website. So you have everything in one place. Until next week, peace out. Thank you for tuning in to Clumsy Theosis. I'm so happy that you've been able to hang out. If you want to learn more about Clumsy Theosis, you are more than welcome to visit my website, clumsytheosis.net. From clumsytheosis.net, you will also be able to contact me if you're interested in booking me as a speaker or if you're just feeling generous and you'd like to make a donation. Remember that together we can transform the world by letting the Lord transform us. 